Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Our mission is to strip away the myths and hype that often surround the aesthetics industry. Inside Aesthetics aims to get to the bottom of the important topics that concern medical and allied health professionals, as well as the consumers themselves. We'll be showcasing the thoughts and experiences of experts in their respective fields. Each podcast will focus on a specialty, including surgery, non-surgical procedures, nutrition, well-being, and business knowledge from the personalities that have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general educational information about cosmetic procedures and well-being. It does not promote or endorse any cosmetic procedure, brand, or product. You should seek professional medical assessment before considering any treatment. Our guest today is Dr. Nero Sivatharsan. Dr. Nero is a cosmetic surgeon who originally trained in the UK. He worked across a variety of surgical specialties but focused on plastic and burn surgery, as well as head and neck reconstruction. He then completed a two-year fellowship in general cosmetic surgery in Australia. Dr. Nero's super specialty focused on cosmetic penile surgery and he spent two years as fellow to Professor Colin Moore, a former figurehead in augmentation phalloplasties. In addition to offering body contouring surgery, Dr. Nero also has an interest in non-surgical treatments of the face, and he's a senior trainer and key opinion leader for several pharmaceutical and medical device companies. Hello, Nero. How are you? Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Jake. Thank you for having me. Thank Thank you for coming. We appreciate it. You came all the way from Gaimia this morning? Absolutely. Traffic not too bad? It's a good time of year to be traveling on the road. It's a good time. It wasn't too bad. So I managed to get here within about 40 minutes. Hmm. Is that... uh, On the speed limit, obviously. Obviously. I mean, I wouldn't think about uh, breaking the speed limit. In your push. (laughs) My my lips are sealed. (laughs) Um, Nero, we've not met before, but um, tell us, we've already done your bio, but try and summarise where you went from maybe junior doctor to Mm. Australia, first of all. Okay, so my rotations were primarily in London, in all the major teaching hospitals. So general surgery and plastic surgery for about four years. Then maxillofacial surgery, did an MBA, and then moved over to Australia. And I did a two-year fellowship with the Australasian College of Cosmetic Surgeons whilst working as a key opinion leader internationally in cosmetic medicine. And then I did another two years um, part-time fellowship in cosmetic penile surgery, which has basically led me to my two main niche areas, which are uh, penile augmentation uh, for cosmetic purposes, of course, and also um, body contouring post-massive weight loss. So people with lots of loose skin and irregularities that need a bit of a nip and tuck. So were you that guy at medical school when everyone wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon and someone wanted to be a plastic surgeon? You said, I want to do penises. Was that you? <coughs> um, <laughs> life is a funny thing. <laughs> I, I just had never really thought that I would end up in that area. And for a lot of people, even in the cosmetic sector, the concept of penile augmentation, whether non-surgically or surgically, is something they've just never heard about. So I've just finished um, a CPD large article for one of the British magazines on this kind of area. Um, And I think it's a topic um, that will really increase in terms of uh, awareness and in terms of demand as an intervention as well over the next few years. Yeah. So how do you, how do you train in penis surgery? Or, or let's take this back. How does someone train as a general surgeon? I mean, that's my background as well, but mm. tell us for our listeners, <clears throat> how does that work and how do you specialize? Well, 
as you're wholly aware, Jake, the UK is a lot more hierarchical and structured. Um, so we have to learn basic surgical skills and principles. Um, I did the uh, Royal College of Surgeons of England exam as well, and I did a various um, diplomas and certificates. So um, after acquiring the key skills, then we become familiar with different procedures, yeah. much akin to any surgical um, specialty. And I suppose one of the key things with anything surgical is that you have a relatively fixed repertoire that you become very familiar with mm -hmm. by repetition. Yeah. Um, it's like so, any job, really, isn't it? You can absolutely. be a plumber, you do similar things most days. And um, I suppose one of the key differences um, in medicine is knowing what not to do. Mm -hmm. and when to not jump in. Sometimes the easiest thing to do is to have a knee-jerk reaction and to dive straight in, but it's perhaps having a more considered approach. And that only comes um, with exposure, which is a uh, consequence of the time we spend in theatre and around our peers and seniors. So um, I suppose after learning that part, I then did four years in plastic surgery, um, learning hand trauma. Burns was my key area of interest, and I've gone to Asia and done pro bono surgery and that kind of thing, mm. um, and then general reconstructive procedures. And of course, um, one doesn't learn cosmetic procedures as part of the syllabus in the West. So it's particularly quite, in the UK. Particularly in the UK, but also in Australia, <clears throat> where you can get, if you're lucky, about three to six months at a push. Um, which is in contrast to a lot of South American countries where plastic surgery is 95% cosmetic with a little bit of reconstructive thrown in, mm. in say the UK or Australia or the US, it's the other way around, 95% reconstructive. So whilst we learn transferable skills and principles to really understand the art of consulting and patient, I suppose, psychology um, and interaction, one really has to immerse themselves subsequently um, in that kind of cosmetic atmosphere. Yeah. It's almost like a, a vocational additional thing that you have to go and seek yourself. Absolutely. Do you yeah. think that um, difference in the South American countries is cultural? Like, do you, it, it, is that what's driven it, do you think? Because it's such a, such a, I guess, a, a normal thing to do, cosmetic mm. procedures or it's plastic surgery. Absolutely, I think you're um, on the money. The main areas or the main countries in the world where cosmetic procedures are loved are, uh, you know, many of the South American countries. So um, Brazil, Colombia, of course, the USA, Korea, Iran, people love having nasal surgery, and Australia per unit capita is the highest. Wow. So I suppose there is a large lifestyle element to it as well. But also in some regions, it's a reflection of one's, um, I suppose, uh, wealth. Mm. Um, and in South America, for example, um, it's almost a status symbol to say, I can afford to have you know, this procedure or that procedure. Hence, it's a lot more on display and it's a lot more out there as well. Yeah. Whereas if we go to some of the European countries, it's a lot more, I suppose, conservative and a little bit more low-key, even when people get it done. Although, of course, we know in the last few years, it's a lot more out there than it once was. Yeah, it's crazy how a cultural trend has shaped medical training. Mm. Well, Absolutely. I, I had a client for a non-surgical uh, injectable treatment from Korea and he told me this blew my mind he was applying for a job in Korea and everyone has to attach their photo to their CV in mm. Korea because looks and uh, like you said your wealth and your status it, it, it is truly bound to how you look mm. and so it's not uncommon for 16 year olds to have uh, eyelid surgery and uh, a more westernizing nose surgery yes and that's really really normal in Korea 
Um, and it's actually quite normal for parents to give um, their daughters either an augmentation rhinoplasty, which in Korea is just putting in an implant, or double eyelid surgery when they finish school or finish high school just before going to university. It's almost like a graduation gift. Yeah. So yeah. there is a significant difference in cultural, I suppose, importance to this kind of intervention. Wow. And you're seeing the same sort of trends starting to, to happen here or? No, not yet. I think um, Australia, certainly if, um, parents um, pushing this kind of thing on their children, it's not really something that's uh, featuring at all. And I, I think Jake, you would concur with that. Uh, yeah, opinion. absolutely. And maybe it's just a personal thing, but I think that's right. I absolutely mean, agree. Yep. Yeah. And also you could, one could argue that, you know, um, someone doesn't really know themselves and doesn't have, I suppose, the confidence at a relatively young and tender age. So I think it's important to have a bit of maturity. Mm. And that's one of the key things we, we do during consultations as well. Aside of working out whether a patient is under duress, whether, you know, their loved one or partner is forcing them to have something, is to work out whether they... Um, truly need it and want it and appreciate the significance and implications yeah. of whatever intervention. And surgically uh, surgically speaking as well, it's a lot harder to reverse um, than non-surgical modalities. So one has to really understand the commitment um, and appreciation the patient has. Yeah, that's interesting. We uh, guess we've got coming up in the next um, week or two is a clinical psychologist that mm. works with a lot of surgeons um, in terms of helping them assess patients or if they identify red flags. Is that something that, that you sort of think you might, or do, do, you, do you sort of entertain that? <clears throat> I think um, during the consultation, the psychological assessment or the component uh, therein is very important. Um, I actually had a young chap that was referred to me by a GP. Um, it was more of a kind of help, what do I do situation. He's very unhappy with his nose um, because of the, uh, if its shape and relative size compared to his face. And he was suicidal. So I actually had um, a chat. I brought his father in and stuff and referred him to uh, somebody else whom I believe is uh, due to feature on your show soon. Oh. Um, fantastic uh, uh, ENT surgeon um, for, you know, subsequent assessment. And we both felt that this patient needed, uh, you know, an appraisal by a psychologist, which the patient subsequently had. Yeah, I guess it's it's always that fine line between, um, you know, what is the core issue, what is what is driving this, and you know, by fixing this this co perceived cosmetic issue or flaw, mm. is it going to make them happier, or are you putting a band aid on a wound that needs something yeah. different? And that's one of the things as well. We have to understand whether this is being misappropriated and masking something else. And sometimes, if we get to the actual core problem. It could be very different from what we suspect on the surface. The wants don't often equal the needs. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, fine. So you went from that basic background to Australia mm. and then you sought out, did you say penal, uh, like a, a fellowship with, with a colleague? Uh, just tell us a bit about that. So um, the chap from whom I learnt, I, I learnt this art from two people. Um, primarily here in Australia, a chap called uh, Professor Moore. Hmm. Um, he's been doing this uh, kind of thing for many, many years, decades, in fact. And he uh, he's an Australian surgeon who also trained in the UK and the US, oh, right. worked in the Middle East, and um, 
this was really his niche. And there are different ways of augmenting the penis. And the surgical approach that he uses, that's also used by a handful of other surgeons, um, which has a lot of uh, reliance on basic plastic surgical principles, mm. um, is arguably the definitive approach. Um, Before you go into the detail, can you explain why someone would, a patient would explore this? How common is this? It's more common than one would think. Um, and I suppose there are two key demographic groups, either people who from a you know, relatively young age have what one would call locker room syndrome, where they just feel that they're perhaps, you know, being laughed at and mocked about, you know, mocked about. Um, and they obviously want to feel a lot more confident. They feel that, you know, the size of their penis is perhaps impeding their society, social function. Mm. And then the other demographic would be someone who's much older, who, um, you know, is now in a position where they've had a family, perhaps the relationship hasn't worked out. They're really looking to renew themselves in inverted commas mm. um, and to go back out there. And I suppose it's a very similar thing with um, breast implants as well, where you see two peak groups, ladies perhaps in their early 20s where there's been poor development and then people perhaps in their 40s where relationships haven't worked out they've had kids mm. things are a little bit um, saggy and they just want um, you know more volume more tightening more lifting etc etc yeah we need to have a second stab yeah. at um, living in inverted commas now uh, when you're talking about this type of surgery um is it purely for size or is there like aesthetic issues that you deal with at the same time mm, so cosmetic penile surgery it's mm. not functional um, in terms of, you know, the actual penis. Right. It's, it's an aesthetic or purely cosmetic right. um, endeavour. Um, but one has to remember that a lot of the, uh, I suppose, functional element has a large psychological component as well. So people who may perhaps suffer with ejaculatory issues could have a significant psychological impediment. Hmm. Um, we might as well mention this now what is a normal penis size <laughs> david david uh, <laughs> snuck that one in <laughs> um it does vary depending on the ethnicity yeah but um you know and, and it depends on the the papers and the studies which you read the other key thing that i will point out is it's also a function of the temperature right yeah um so that can cause it to really shrivel and you know become smaller um your house is always cold isn't it just <laughs> <laughs> trying to give everyone else an advantage the third leg syndrome yeah. <laughs> um but it's actually not the length that gives satisfaction to a female it's the girth of the penis so the whole thing about longer penises being um i suppose more on vogue mm. not quite sure that that's correct because the um, a lot of the nerves in the yeah. vaginal vault are towards the outside. So that there's a saying, you know, long and thin goes right in and brings along <laughs> the babies. Short and thick, something, something, and satisfies the ladies. So, so you've done a survey. <laughs> um, but can you be too short is really the question rather than... Yes, you can have is. a condition called micropenis. Right. But even, and I've seen um, a fair number of men who suffer with, with you know, micropenis. Mm. Um, um, Nira, I did some reading before uh, you came on the show mm. and I read something called the, 
I think it was the penis stretch test mm. to check what very the potential erection size will or should be. Is that something Absolutely. that you use? Yeah. So there are different metrics for measuring the uh, length of the penis. One of them is called the SPL or stretched penile length. Yeah. And this is uh, a figure that's um, worked out when we um, yank on the penis, quite literally, we pull it out um, and we measure from its attachment at the bony level yeah. all the way to the tip of the glands or the head of the penis. Mm -hmm. But again, there is a very large, I'm going to use the word subjective component in terms of how much distractive force or stretch force is applied. Yeah. Um, so again, a lot of these things, you can kind of massage it, which is one of the reasons I suppose there is a confusion between three inches and six inches mm. when guys, uh, you know, define how long they have <laughs> their, their, their little friend. Um, but it's one of the, you know, measures that we use. But of course, you can measure the diameter of the penis or circumference, circumference um, which is a function of the temperature as well. And there are so many other little variables um, that make it a relatively imprecise measurement. Okay, so you would use that test to measure the potential size of an erection. Correct. So about a third of the penis is buried. Yeah. When um, people, uh, when when men become hard and the penis becomes erect, the that amount which is buried will, I suppose, come outwards. Yeah. So by measuring the stretched penile length, we try to ascertain how much extra length can be gained by cutting the ligament um, that holds the penis in. That sounds painful. So that, is that the main technique that you're using to get length? So length can only be achieved by cutting the ligament. And then it's very important to have stretching exercises or some kind of instrument to keep the penis pulled out. Because as you know, the um, healing phase with scarring occurs over 12 to 18 months. And we don't want the penis to be drawn back in. Yeah. So it's potentially, you know, it is possible for one to lose length after uh, the ligament is released because of excessive scarring, pulling the penis back in. So if one were to proceed with uh, a ligament release procedure, SLR, um, then I, I'm very, very, uh, how can I put it, picky, mm. that the patient must be compliant with stretching exercises and the use of instruments to pull it outwards. Mm. Does that have any, those that, that cutting that ligament, does it have any impact on strength of the erection or stability or? Absolutely correct. Um, it Because the um, suspensory ligament keeps the penis relatively, I suppose, in place, depending on some sexual positions, um, it is... As a consequence, if we completely detach it, um, some positions may not be as stable, shall we say. So in my time as a junior doctor covering urology, which is, um, you know, penile and urethral and bladder type uh, surgery, for mm. those who don't know, I 
saw three emergency fractured penises. Yes. So that was a consequence of women on top sex. That's Correct. a very classic thing, apparently. Absolutely. So are you saying that that is a position that, that becomes be much harder? So kind avoided, of just reverse to... cowgirl in inverted commas, <laughs> um, perhaps. He went there. <laughs> Wouldn't be recommended. This is relevant. This is relevant. People want to know. You've got to ask the tough questions. You know. Um, okay, so that's length. Mm. And now... Obviously, you can't talk us through the surgery, but what are the basic steps to someone coming to your theatres on the day to going home and recovery? Mm. What happens on the day and how long does it take? Are we talking length or girth? Length for now, and then we'll come on to girth. So length is relatively simple um, because it's essentially um, dividing the ligament. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is quite straightforward, um, and people can go home on the same same day with no issues whatsoever. So where's the snip? Um, we have to find the ligament which is just above the penis and in the pelvic area, basically. So is it so a small incision, incision above, well, in, in through the pubic hair, that sort of region? Correct, which means that it's hidden um, post post-operatively once the scar has matured. Is it a big scar or? No, it's a relatively small scar. Okay, so that means you can't have your lazy manzillion, <laughs> manzillion, unless you want people to know. Oh. <laughs> yeah, um, and then girth. Yeah, so, so girth. Um, I mean, how does that work? Fillers. Okay, you, so you... you've got a non-surgical approach here and a surgical approach. Mm. So the non-surgical approach could, uh, well, basically, is the use of hyaluronic acid fillers, or even biostimulatory fillers such as polycaprolactone. And what is that? Um, I can't mention brand names in Australia, unfortunately, but right. it's a it's a type of filler that causes the body to produce more collagen. Collagen has a half-life of about, of about 10 to 15 years, so it gives you a much more prolonged outcome. The downside is that there is no get-out-of-jail card or reversibility, whereas with right. a hyaluronic acid filler, one can break it down. Um, so you can inject fillers in a circumferential fashion around the penis. There are three erectile cylinders or chambers, and we put the fillers outside, so to plump it up. In effect, similar to what women do with their lips, or putting fillers into the cheeks. That's a relatively quick and easy procedure. Um, and the filler, and I'm going to use the word sets, or I suppose hardens, in inverted commas, it's not truly that way, but that takes place over a couple of days. Mm. So no sexual intercourse for about two weeks. And then um, and knock yourself out. Wow. The, quite literally. <laughs> and um, the surgical approach, you've got two key types. One is lipotransfer, so similar to moving fat from, say, the love handles to the face or um, to the breasts, for example, one can do some liposuction and then inject that fat into the penis. The downside of that approach is that uh, the fat, um, its viability or ability to survive is variable. Mm. So typically one says by about a year, most of that fat has gone, and um, is thirty percent a rough figure for the survivability of how much fat? You it depends in? where we are. Um, so different parts of the body are going to have different, you know, survival percentages. Mm. It also depends on the amount that's injected as well, and the way it's harvested or taken and then manipulated. Sure. But we, I would say, in the penis, probably eighty percent would have gone by a year. And it's also possible for fat to calcify. So you can get what's known as a cobblestone penis if the fat were to calcify and, um, you know, die differentially. So it can look a little bit diseased, 
And as a consequence... That would put off a few potential... Uh, that puts off I'm going little. for the fillers. <laughs> <laughs> Cobbles, so, that'd be like wearing like a ribbed condom. Absolutely right. right. Yeah. Some people like that. Though. So some people may argue that the sensation is better, but from a purely visual aesthetic point, sure, I understand. probably not something that... Okay, so basically what you're saying is after a year what you've got is is your final result, basically, yeah. what's left. Which is normally 30. suboptimal. Okay. So probably about 20% of what's been mm. initially injected. Right. So the most definitive technique is to do, um, and this is the approach that I use, it's a dermal fat graft, where we take um, a piece of skin with the fat attached, we remove the outer part of the skin, and then we have to pull the penis out um, and very carefully um, attach this tissue, it's known as a free tissue graft, to the penile cylinders and then pop it gently back in. And the principle here is that the blood vessels um, in some of the tissues of the penis will grow and develop and they will form new connections with the tissue we've moved. So similar to a lot of the autologous breast reconstructive procedures and so on where we're hoping that new blood vessels will grow and develop. Um, this is the same principle, which obviously means it's a lot more precarious and the outcome has to be very carefully, you know, explained to the mm. patient about downtime, what they can do, what they shouldn't do. And the procedure is a lot more involved as well. And then complications? Complications. Necrosis or... It's potentially there. Mm. So far in my hands, I've, I'm quite lucky. Nothing's um, happened in terms of losing the graft, but... The procedures are a couple of hours, you know, four to five hours. Um, it's a lot more invasive. Uh, there's a general anaesthetic. Um, and, of course, you've got all the other surgical considerations, so anaesthetic or anaesthesia-related um, considerations. Then you're going to have essentially two wounds, one where I've taken the graft mm. and, of course, the penis, which has received the graft as well. Right. Going back to the dermal fillers, a lot of our listeners have got some concept of volume and, you know, a lip might take a mil. Mm. What are we talking about for an average girth procedure? And we're using the term um, average very loosely here, but typically what I would say is around 8 to 10 mils for the shaft of the penis mm -hmm. and then for the head of the penis, perhaps 3 to 5 mils. So, and again, it's a function of expectation and one should be aware of expectation delivery mismatch. And of course, the bigger the penis is to begin with, the more dermal filler one shall need because it's just larger, you've got more area to fill. Yeah. So what, I mean, again, this is rough costs, but mm. what are we looking at for that type of procedure? So anywhere from about six to 10,000. For the fillers. Mm. Right. Which are reversible. Which are reversible. And depending on the type of filler, remember, hyaluronic acid um, is a product that's found ubiquitously. Um, and then it's stabilized in different ways. So you can get hyaluronic acid-based fillers that can last three to four months, mm. some that can last up to two years. And of course, there are different, I suppose, issues related to the way the fillers are stabilized. So some brands have a higher risk of forming lumpy um, areas yep. than other brands. So this is a kind of thing where your surgeon or physician will talk you through and mm. hopefully equip you with the knowledge. And something I tell a lot of my mentees is that when a patient comes, it's our role to give them the pros and the cons and to give them the different options and help them to make the right decision that's suitable for themselves. It's not a cookbook. Um, one size does not fit all. And we need to tailor the intervention to the patient. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
so it seems like why would someone choose the surgical option over the the, the non the non surgical, the non-surgical yeah. approach? Um, one word: um, longevity of the outcome. Right. So the surgical um, approach, whilst it is of course more expensive, has a high risk of complications. Once it's done. And providing all has gone well and the patient has been compliant post-operatively, I cannot emphasize that enough. That is a lifetime uh, outcome. Whereas um, the use of soft tissue fillers will require top-ups and interventions every you know, you know year and a half to two years or thereabouts. And would you get some long-lasting effect from collagen stimulation from, I guess, the mechanical trauma or the, the filler itself actually causing... Like some girls that have their lips done, for example... If they've had them done for a number of years, they'll mm. find that even when there's no filler left, that their lips were bigger than what they were prior. Okay. Um, so the way to answer that is to basically um, divide it into two parts. The use of fillers, whether they're biostimulatory or hyaluronic acid <coughs> temporary fillers, they have a stretching um, action on the local tissues, and that stimulates the cells known as fibroblasts to actually lay down some collagen, the filler can integrate, and so on and so forth. Um, so yes, you're right, but the question here is the tangibility of the outcome, um, lips versus, you know, the penis, it's a different thing. Mm. And of course, one has to remember that, um, with the face as one, as we age, we do lose volume and there are other structural changes. So the relative impact Mm. of one area can change over time purely as part of the aging process. Mm. And sensation do you have any like sensation changes or the answer is medically there shouldn't be any real difference because the nerves are not being manipulated in any way however there are a lot of guys that say that once they've had um you know soft tissue fillers they're getting better orgasms right although i suspect that that is supratentorial in other words psychological placebo yeah and, um, you know, at the end of the day, though, if it works for them, fantastic. Mm. Whatever gets you to that happier outcome, to that better place, brilliant. They feel better about themselves. They're more comfortable. More comfortable. Having more fun. And the other thing I would add here is, you know, everyone's potentially vulnerable to being hoodwinked. So there are all sorts of email circulars that promise pills that do this, that, the other, and the use of PRP to the penis as well. There is actually no scientific validation whatsoever that it causes any you know, benefits. So the so-called P-shot or O-shot yep. to the penile glands and so on. Mm, I think it's it's great from a very on Vogue point of view, you know, we're talking about facials, Kim Kardashian's getting this, that, the other, people are getting vampire facials, etc. It seems very fashionable right now to have your own blood taken, spun, and then re-injected back in. But scientifically, I don't think there's anything that really stacks up. Yeah, it, it's quite attractive for people to have a natural, inverted commas, treatment rather mm. than making the step to anti-wrinkle or dermal fillers in, in some aspects. So yeah, I think you're right. I mm. mean, it, it, it seems like cool. And, and you're using your own blood to, to somehow achieve an endpoint, but I'm not entirely sure if the evidence is there or not. I really Ab- don't. Know. Absolutely. And even with um, the use of platelet rich plasma to other areas in the body, aside of musculoskeletal interventions, where I think there is some reasonable evidence, yeah. cosmetically speaking, one has to remember that the blood flow to that area will wash out a lot of what's been injected. So you get a temporary increase 
by virtue of volumization, but um, temporary is the operative word. Hmm. So we've got one more question on penile surgery before we move on. Uh, one of our followers, Bobby from Osman, he wants to know, when can I masturbate after <laughs> these types of procedures? Mm. So if it's a non-surgical approach, I would say wait two weeks. If it's surgical, six weeks. Six weeks. There you go. There you Any go, form of trauma or rubbing or friction is to be avoided <laughs> whilst the area is healing, in inverted commas. Bobby okay. from Mossman. Nice. Okay. So moving on to your other super specialty of body contouring. Mm. This is, again, pretty on vogue from what we can see around Sydney. Just... What does that actually mean, body contouring? Okay, so it's a relatively loose term. It can be everything from liposuction to um, actual surgical excision of tissues and lifting and tightening. Yeah. So, for example, somebody who has um, lost a lot of weight and they've got the so-called bingo wings or tuck shot wings will require a surgical uh, intervention to debulk the excess skin and you know you've got a lot of people promising improvements with the use of threads and so on but that in my opinion is just outrageously wrong because mm -hmm. you cannot tighten so significantly once you've you know it's gone past that elastic threshold and there is so much redundant skin so yeah that, that's the kind of thing where one has to have a surgical intervention okay so what procedures do you offer uh, as a broad thing? So you do do lipo? So liposuction, abdominoplasties, um, breast surgeries, brachioplasties. What's a brachioplasty? So that's the arm lift. Okay, um, And of course, um, people with uh, fat under the chin area, so around the neck or mm -hmm. submental fat, and we can liposuck it out, or there are other ways non-surgically as well. And that actually is something that I've written about, some of the complications with one of the non-surgical techniques where fat is um, cooled and frozen, mm -hmm. or cryolipolysis, uh, where there is a, approximately a 1 in 1,000 risk of more fat developing. And that's more acute for men than for women and especially in the uh, male chest area. So I've dealt with cases where I've had to surgically address problems that have been caused by the uh, freezing of fat, causing more fat to be laid down. And do you know why that might be happening? Well, this has been recognized for the last four, four years or so, um, although a lot of it is not really out there. Um, the science... We're not entirely sure. We think it's some kind of protective mechanism where the body is saying, hold on, I'm being traumatized. A fat is a, you know, it's a survival product, arguably. So it's trying to then, uh, you it's know, a reflex. Like a keloid scar of the fat or, or different? I, that's a pretty simple but also appropriate analogy, I think. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, um, and the fat, when we then address it, there have been cases where it's been liposucked out but it still continued to grow. Mm. So we then had to cut it out. Wow. But we've not found that it's occurring so far with ultrasonic fat cavitation or with heating. It seems to be a phenomenon that's at the moment recognized only with cooling. And of course, not everyone gets it, but it's probably about one in a thousand or thereabouts. Hmm. Okay. Does it keep growing exponentially or does it just, like when you say re reoccurs or mm. like how? So... The way that cooling works is it causes the fat to get into a process of um, apoptosis where the cells die. Mm. Um, and what we found is for those who are really unlucky, the uh, fat seems to 
bizarrely grow and multiply i suppose um and that's the problem you then need something more definitive to then suck it out but there are cases now where the fat even after being sucked out has continued to grow wow post yeah. post cooling post cooling post liposuction wow. to address the initial problem that's interesting. Mm. I mean, I guess to put this into some context, for example, for you know, listeners who might understand risks and things, mm. if you have an anti-wrinkle treatment, one of the things we worry about is a dropped eyelid. Yes. Now, the common uh, rate of that happening is we say about 1%. So you're saying this is, it, it's you know, my practice is not 1%, but what I'm saying is that is what we quote on our consent mm. forms. You've got a 1% chance of your eyelid dropping after having an anti-wrinkle treatment, yes. which most people accept. They say, well, it's 99% chance of me being fine. Mm. So you're saying it's uh, 0.1% chance. Well, initially, um, some of the papers were suggesting it was about 1 in 50,000, then it became 1 in 20, then 1 in 10, but we think it's a lot more, probably mm. close to 1 in 1,000. I suppose with the eyelid droop that you've touched upon firstly that's reversible yes um in this well not reversible it's transient rather um and all too often it's not complete there's a little bit of asymmetry if one were to be unlucky mm. um and it's you know one can try and avoid it by technique placement etc whereas with the cryotherapy um it's a complete unknown when it's going to happen correct yeah. absolutely and also um once the fat develops, so far there is no evidence or um, historical appreciation of the fat then regressing once it's overgrown. Mm. So it seems to be a bit more permanent. Okay, interesting. Like a rogue fat cell that just... Pretty much. And has there been any sort of commonalities amongst the people that it happens to? So in, in the literature, remember a lot of this has come from the States mm. where this kind of um, intervention was quite popular. Um, they found that Mexican males have a higher risk. Mm. Now, from what I have seen where I've uh, had to deal with things surgically, um, the male chest area where, you know, freezing has been undertaken for man boobs in inverted commas, that's been a problematic area. Do you think that um, it's because there's more glandular tissue rather than fat there? Is it a different mm. uh, response? So with man boobs, we've got pseudogynecomastia and gynecomastia. So one is gland related one is fat related or you know relative uh, proportions possibly you could be right mm. um is it the overgrowth of glandular tissue yep perhaps um i haven't seen enough numbers to give you a valid answer there yeah but certainly there is a fat component okay so that is sort of the problems or, or one of the small problems of mechanical uh weight loss using fat machines but liposuction itself mm. how Firstly, how risky is that? Is it dependent on which area of the body you do it? And, and how popular is it now? Now there are non-surgical methods. Yes. So liposuction is the uh, most popular cosmetic surgical intervention in the world. And it's been that way for many years. It was actually pioneered by uh, dermatologists and gynecologists. So a lot of the cosmetic procedures that we do have taken, um, you know, have been influenced by different specialties, so general surgery, uh, gynecology, um, ENT, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So liposuction has been used pretty much for about thirty years, mm -hmm. um, with a lot of um, science into what we're doing, um, and 
Of course, there are risks with any procedure, and the risks are dependent on the aggressiveness of the procedure and, of course, the location. Mm. So um, it is possible to cause quite significant damage with a liposuction cannula, which is a long, um, small instrument that we use to suck out the fat. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is the kind of thing that I discuss with patients uh, in depth. And consenting is not a one-off process. It is a, it's, I suppose, a journey where patients have to appreciate things. Um, and consent forms have to be written in a very clear fashion that anyone can read. And just because it's written down, it doesn't mean that they've necessarily understood it. So that's where the quality of the consultation is so important. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, we all take risks in life. And the moment we wake up and leave our home, then we have risks of things going wrong. So it's about context. Context is key. And then, of course, minimizing other things as well. Mitigation is always better than correction, of course. And do you, um, with the consultation process, do you do secondary consults? I know a lot of surgeons make mm. a part of their practice that they'll have someone do initial consult, have a think about it. If they're still keen to proceed, then they come back for a subsequent discussion. <clears throat> so that model um, where perhaps a nurse or a junior doctor is doing the initial consulting mm. is to really get patients in mm -hmm. um, and to give patients a feel for the clinic, um, what's on offer, etc. Mm -hmm. It's not necessary to employ that approach. Sometimes patients want to come in, they want to see the actual surgeon who's going to do the procedure, mm. and then you spend as long as you need to. And of course, if a patient wants to come back, they're very, you know, very welcome to come back. Mm. Patients have to be satisfied that, you know, they are in um, the hands of a doctor with whom they can work with should something not go as planned. Yeah. And um, in terms of these surgical procedures for body contouring fat loss, mm. it would seem that the biggest issue that people would need to reconcile in their mind is the scarring that they're going to be left with afterwards. So for the non-liposuction surgical approaches, absolutely. You cannot um, cut the skin and not have a scar, by definition. Um, and of course, the more loose skin one has um, and the more approximation that's required between the different parts to bring it together, the wider the scar is going to be. But uh, you know, as with many things, there's a genetic component that we can't necessarily control. Um, there are other things that patients can do to minimize a significant scar from evolving as well. And of course, the quality of the suturing has a bearing. Mm. I don't know if you know a figure for this, but what sort of percentage of your post-liposuction patients are very happy or, you know, they, they've got the result that they want? What sort of proportion of uh, patients have that? The art um, of cosmetic medicine or surgery is choosing the right patient. Um, of course, that applies across the board for medicine, but it's especially acute here. Um, so far, because I've been very considered with my approach, uh, satisfaction rates have been very high. Mm. One thing I would say is that if somebody has a lot of loose skin or a likelihood of having redundant skin post-liposuction, in other words, once the fat has gone, we're going to be left with lots of loose skin, yeah. then they're going to need that to be cut out. Now, of course, some will say, I can live with it because my clothes will hide it and I don't have that you know, area that bulges out. Mm. So I'm happy with it. Um, others are going to say, well, no, I need that addressed as well because I want to be on the beach or so on and so forth. So it depends on what the patient is really looking for. 
Are there different types of technique with lipo or is it similar, like you said, the big cannula and, that, and that's effectively it? At a very simple level, that that is the key approach. You can have little variations. So the use of ultrasound energy to heat and melt the fat in inverted commas, um, et cetera, et cetera. But really, and the principle is that we have to break down the fat and then suck it out and debulk um, the area. Um what was my next question? I've got lost here. Um, yeah, in Sydney, we've seen lots of non-surgical clinics pop up mm. offering what is described as body sculpting or <laughs> body contouring. Mm. You, you did touch on some of the risks or problems with that, but as a general rule, is there, is there a place for that as well? You know what? Absolutely. It is, by and large, a very safe intervention. Um, of course, you can cause skin burns from the application of various uh, devices that... Uh, are employed to break down the fat but assuming things are being you know carried out carefully and with due consideration and awareness of what can go wrong actually you know the, the, the there certainly is a place for this kind of thing not everyone can um, afford a surgical intervention or something mm. um, and the technology is getting better every year mm. so anyone who kind of dismisses it i think is perhaps being a little bit unreasonable do you think that it will get to a point where the non-surgical options are so good that surgery is no longer required? Is it possible? Yes. Unlikely. But I think it's unlikely, number mm. one. Number two, there will always be a place for surgery because mm. loose skin will, and if there's so much loose skin, that has to be cut out. Mm. Yeah. And of course, you know, people have multiple procedures done in one go sometimes so for example i do a lot of mummy makeovers so address the breast area and address the um, lower tummy area as well mm. is that uh, a newer thing or has mummy, mummy makeovers been there for as long as lipo has been um, i think it's been around for a long long time um it's perhaps the catchphrase is a little bit more on vogue mm. but it's been around for a long time okay yeah people reinventing the, the different ways of, of marketing and promoting the same <laughs> thing yeah Going back to these clinics, um, who should they be run by? <clears throat> so I can answer this in different ways. I can put my MBA hat on, I can put my medical hat on, I can put, I suppose, a regulatory hat on. My personal opinion here is that any clinic that has a doctor who has interests in the running of the clinic will arguably be run at a higher level, arguably. Um, because there are some things that only a doctor appreciates that a businessman may not. By the same token, a businessman or an entrepreneur will bring a very different set of skills, a different approach to the running of the clinic. There are countries in the world where medical clinics have to have a doctor as an owner or part owner. Mm. I personally think that that's the right way forwards um, because, of course, as doctors, you know, you and I are regulated and we have to work to a certain standard. Mm. And that means that whatever we do, we have to be, a, you know, there's an ethical and a moral code of conduct that we have to factor into the equation. And I think that's, you know, probably the right thing. Okay. Now, up until recently, because I actually had a little uh, cool sculpting procedure, mm. um, I was quite uh, sceptical if, if, if it would work. Yes. So... Are, are all of these machines similar in terms of the results or 
you know, you mm. can have skin tightening machines yeah. versus surgery. Mm. Like, you know, is it as easy as popping into Westfield and getting my skin tightening done? You know, again, um, different considerations. Not all cars are the same. Some are going to be very fast. Some are going to be able to haul large loads. Some are going to be very economical. And it's a similar thing as well. So not all brands of machine are going to have the same efficacy mm -hmm. or outcome result. Um, so there is that as a bearing. The other thing, of course, is in terms of skin tightening as well, you find companies promising all sorts of things. Yeah. There is only one modality or type of intervention that actually tightens the skin, and that it's radio frequency tightening. Okay. But with a lot of cosmetic procedures, one plus one is more than two. Mm -hmm. So if you whack in some um, you know, ultrasonic fat cavitation and radio frequency tightening, you're going to get a much better result than if you just apply the radio frequency tightening and think you're going to you know, get a wonderfully tight result or whatever. Yeah. Um, so again, the patient has to be appropriately appraised um, and to go from there and value proposition as well. If, for, if by spending a little bit more, your result is a lot more definitive and a lot more tangible, sometimes that's the way forward. But then if you don't, if you can't have the downtime after a surgical procedure, then a non-surgical intervention, yeah. 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 So again, horses for courses. Okay. Um, this, I guess, leads on to non-surgical mm. treatments, which mm, is correct. another of your big things. Tell us about, um, well, firstly, how you trained in uh, injectable non-surgical treatments. So um, I first got into um, cosmetic injectables in 2007, which is the same year I started plastic surgical training in the UK. Um, back then, it wasn't as mature a market as it is now. I think botulinum toxin is the most studied drug in this world. Um, and obviously, where there's a bit more of a I suppose, financial gain for companies, they're going to invest a lot more in terms of studies and so on and so forth. So I started getting into that field, um, so 11, 12 years ago, um, subsequently found that because of my surgical experience as well, my appreciation and speed of execution of procedures was much quicker. Um, appraisal was a lot more balanced. I could see the limits of non-surgical approaches. Um, and then I became a key opinion leader for different pharmaceutical companies, um, both in Europe and now in Australia. Um, and at the moment, uh, I, I do a lot of teaching on um, non-surgical facelifting and I suppose rejuvenation of the face um, with the use of threads as well, mm -hmm. where I would submit that 95% do not work not because of the patient, because, uh, but rather because of inappropriate patient selection by the physician. Okay, I'm glad you touched on that because I don't offer threads myself, mm. uh, partly because it just hasn't been on my radar and injectables I'm achieving good results, mm. but also I've seen lots of clients come in who have had a thread procedure and their satisfaction was very poor. Absolutely. And again, you know, I'm not qualified to say that you are. I, I can give a crash course. Threads have been around for perhaps about 20 years. Mm. And breaking anything I do when I explain it to a patient, I try to compartmentalize the different topics because once it's done, they've got bite-sized chunks that they can then digest. Mm. So you've got short threads and long threads. 
you've got threads that are smooth and threads that have some kind of contouring. And then you've got different materials. Mm -hmm. So not all materials of thread are the same. Some are going to be permanent. Some are going to be uh, temporary, but long-lasting temporary. Some are going to cause a lot more collagen deposition around the threads. So once they lifted or support the tissues, there's collagen being laid down. Now, short threads in general, in my opinion, waste of time. You may as well get a biostimulatory filler. But of course, it's very on vogue to see photos on Instagram and so on where people have 50 needles in their face <laughs> with bits of thread sticking out. Actually, the science doesn't stack up. Contrary to what people may try and say, there is unfortunately an inappropriate retail spin to this kind of thing. Yep. Then with um, smooth versus contour threads, the question you have to ask yourself is what is the thread trying to achieve? The thread is basically trying to lift up tissues that have dropped over time with gravity, with loss of bone structure, etc., etc., weakening of some of the soft tissue supporting structures. So a smooth thread is not going to really cause much lifting. It's not really biting into tissues. It's got no purchase. So if you look at um, contour threads, you've at a very basic level got barbs and cones. Can we just try and uh, describe for our listeners who can't see this mm. and have never seen a thread before, what what does it look like and, and how is it put in? So again, it does vary depending on the brand, but essentially it's a long piece of suture material or, you know, fine thread, thread yeah. like like like, yeah. like a bit of silk. Or I've something. heard people call it fishing wire. Fishing wire. Mm. Some And, you <laughs> yeah, know, some doesn't. or even puppet strings, which is why one of the nicknames is a puppet lift yeah um so it's just a very fine slender piece of thread sometimes you find needles that are swaged on um otherwise one has oh, what sorry those the needles are stuck on oh, basically okay so they're um, part of the they're, they're part of run. the actual okay. instrument in inverted commas mm -hmm. sometimes one has to use a spinal needle which is a long uh needle with a large hole in it uh, where we then put the thread inside to try and engage it and just just sorry just to clarify you're you're doing these procedures under like local anesthetic local anesthetic okay and you know again confidence inspires confidence mm. and if you're fluid with this kind of approach it can be done you know well within 20 minutes mm -hmm. um so the threads can vary in length they can be short ones or long ones, and when really. You say long. How long are we talking? Mm, you've got me there, but probably about about thirty centimeters long. Okay, and so the typical client that would be potentially good for a thread mm. case would be somebody who hasn't aged very much and who doesn't have too much loose skin. So perhaps the best way of looking at a thread is to say that it delays. A definitive surgical intervention. Mm -hmm. So perhaps somebody in their late 30s, early 40s, of course, depending on ethnicity as well, different races have different amounts of elastin in the skin, and the aging pattern varies as well. Um, but typically, late 30s, early 40s would be an ideal candidate. As a rule of thumb, somebody who's perhaps in their 60s will not get a good result with threads. Mm -hmm. And this is where doctors get it wrong, where perhaps if they cannot offer a surgical intervention, then they will say, oh, you know, I can achieve this with threads. You know what, it might work for about a month, two months, three months, but ultimately 
the tissues will start to sag again yeah. and patients are left with a bitter taste in their mouth where they've spent a couple of thousand dollars and they've not really had a result that's mm. long lasting. So it's more of a result of making a decision based on commercial gain Correct. rather than what's appropriate for the patient. And we sort of touched on this with a couple of guests recently about, um, you know, the industry working together rather than, than, you know, imploding or against each other in that knowing what your limitations are and, you know, having the confidence in your relationship with your client to say, look, you know, this is what you're going to require. I don't offer this, but mm. this is the most appropriate person for you to see, you know, because so, the patients are getting the best outcomes. Correct. So having awareness of one's skill set. Um, and also, you know, I always tell people the worst thing is to be unconsciously incompetent than being consciously incompetent because <laughs> mm. then you don't know what you don't know. Yeah, dangerous. Yeah. Scary. That's dangerous. And then having good relationships with your peers. Now, again, because of the nature of cosmetic versus plastics in Australia, perhaps that's a little bit fragmented, but it is improving and I can see improvement there. Different parts of the world, it's not the case. For, for example, in Holland, cosmetic medicine as of 1 July 2019 will be a recognized specialty. In Malaysia, I think one has to be on the specialist register there as well. Mm. So there is... You know, there are a lot of positive strides and steps being made. In America, the American Board of Cosmetic Surgeons, um, they have board examinations. And I suppose one of the differences between, say, Canada, UK and Australia, where it's a lot more, well, similar, the, the structure, the Royal College of Surgeons in Canada and Australia, uh, sorry, and the UK actually have a parliamentary charter. Whereas in Australia, none of the postgraduate um, colleges um, have a parliamentary charter, even even though they're using the word royal. So they're all actually private bodies. Mm. And in fact, going a little bit further, not all, I think only one is a true registered training organisation. So they're all private entities giving certification, unlike in other parts of the world. With effectively no comprehensive validation. Correct but they would like people, including the public and, in fact, our peers to within the, the fraternity perception. to have the perception that they are bona fide or validated, etc. That's a big issue. Um, so, for example, some of the colleges are wrongly attacking the other ones when, in fact, you know, the, the, the old Adash people in class houses throwing stones comes to mind. So, again, as exactly as David has said, and as many commentators have said over the last decade, patients benefit when everyone works together. Mm. Um, and I hope that with some of the impending regulatory changes, that's the direction the market in Australia shall follow. We sort of got off point there. Yeah. Let's just continue that for a moment because it's interesting and it's a really hot topic for injectors and, and cosmetic surgeons, mm. plastic surgeons, all of us really. W what do you think is the gold standard model? I mean, you sort of touched on it, but how do we get from now to that? Everyone's playing nicely. Patients mm. are getting the best outcomes. But Regulators are happy, yeah. I mean, you know, we hear of these isolated, awful incidents mm. where people suffer or... Unfortunately, we heard of that death in Sydney not long, not long ago, but it's very isolated. Mm. And yet the whole industry will change seismically based on, any based on a very unusual uh, circumstance. <clears throat> Correct. So, so the media is guilty here. You know, they say that if you don't read 
newspapers, you're uninformed. And if you read newspapers, you're misinformed. And for some reason, that seems to be increasing the, the degree of misappropriation. So unfortunately, things are sensationalized and blown out of proportion. Even that case in Sydney that you're talking about, I think there was a lot of misreporting in the media. Um, and I say that because I know a lot of people in the uh, regulatory board and so on and so forth. Um, in terms of the gold standard, I don't think it's been defined yet. Mm. So it's very hard for me to give an answer that is appropriate to the Australian market. Yeah. What I can say, however, is different parts of the world have different standards. So, for example, the UK is very, very weak in terms of injectables, where even though they've tried to tighten things up, any Tom, Dick and Harry can buy stuff online and inject with Legally. impunity. Is this filler or, or so, botulinum um, toxins? Botulinum toxins. Okay. Wow. And, um, you know, technically they should be having a prescription for this kind of thing, but it's very easy to acquire and it's become very commercialized. Um, and it's the laughing stock of Europe right now. In contrast, if you cross the channel and go to France, it's a lot more regulated. Mm. Uh, Germany's a lot more regulated as well. So in terms of defining gold standards, this is where the different craft groups have got to work together. Do you think that it's partly because the industry has evolved itself and the law is catching up behind it? Mm. Or you know, what has led us to, to, to where we are today? Because, I mean, the countries, like you said, I don't think nurses inject. So it's Correct. a little bit easier to control because yeah. it's, by definition, only one population or, or, or group doing it. Mm. Whereas in, you know, for example, Australia, I think 70% of our injectors are nurses. Yes. And so to sort of try and grandfather a point in the sand where you say, this is the law from today mm. and what happened yesterday doesn't exist, it's going to be really hard. I think you've nailed it pretty much. It's always easier to control a smaller, more defined population. And of course, once the horse has bolted, in inverted commas, it's hard to go backwards. Um, two things I would say, um, technology has advanced a lot more than in the, the law and regulatory, I suppose, considerations have been able to evolve at the same rate. So there is a mismatch there. So for example, a lot of the teleconsulting that takes place was not designed for the cosmetic sector. It was designed to provide medical services for rural parts of Australia. And I think that's arguably being misappropriated. At the same time, one has to ask, is there turf protection taking place for no reason? Um, so again, having a very open discussion is key to um, allowing things to progress appropriately mm. and correctly. Um, I mean, there have been people who've made claims that some of the guys in the regulatory uh, positions perhaps may not have been playing fairly because of other vested interests. So again, it's a very hot topic, as you've said, mm. um, and one that right now is perhaps, you know, something that one has to answer very carefully about. It would seem that, um, you know, you're saying about uh, turf protection and things like that, you know, the term patient safety, which is obviously you know, paramount and mm. tends to be used in, from what I can see in some instances as a mask for what is hiding a real agenda. Mm. Um, Patient safety, anything that's emotive is going to catch the um, 
you know, the, the media's attention. Well, how, how can you not? How can other. you not be for patient <clears throat> safety? Correct. So, you find one group, perhaps one that's a little bit more outspoken than another, just banging on about patient safety and trusted groups and trusted bodies and this kind of thing, when actually, um, you know, it's just playing with emotive terms. And it's similar, I suppose to breast implants as well. It's a very emotive topic. So in America, the company Dow Corning, which was forced to shut down, had its demise based on, I suppose, a lot of people taking advantage and jumping onto that whole topic of patient safety and risks and so on. We have to let science speak. We have to let pragmatism has to prevail, mm. period. And the only way that can happen is when there is more open discourse. Um, and I think um, Australia will have a lot of catching up to do from that point of view. Yeah. Um, so now let's go back to threads mm. after that yeah, intense, well. controversial um, <laughs> chat. Um, so it's a, it's a fishing wire or a long string mm. with a needle either end, so you can put it in and out the skin? So th that's one particular type of thread, and I, I know I can't mention brands right now, um, but that's the one that I use mm -hmm. because it's easy in terms of not having to mess around with putting additional instruments in. Okay. So essentially you would find the tissue area that's more mobile and try and lift it and support it uh, using tissues that are less mobile. So typically the lower part of the face and the middle part of the face is going to age more and droop more. So we want to kind of lift that back up. So people have, I suppose, more of a U or a V shape, hmm. which is synonymous with a younger face. Yeah. Um, so the role of the threads that I use are to reposition and support the tissues. But of course, if we then put in soft tissue fillers and other modalities as well, you're going to get a great result. So how many of these, average is such a poor term, but how many of your thread uh, cases mm. would also be augmented with dermal fillers? Virtually all. Okay. Because so, they all have a role. And remember, one of the things, uh, or one of the aspects that makes a face look younger is having more volume. Correct. So there are, for example, some treatments where focus ultrasound is applied I'm a big, how can I put it, a critic of that. Because what actually happens is the heating of the layers above the target layer results in the loss of fat. Hence and the loss the of fat causes more sagging. Mm -hmm. So I would argue this is a ticking time bomb. And I've actually published on this topic. So things that, you know, where, with focus ultrasound as an example... Um, where it's used to so-called lift the face, mm. Mm, I'm not sure. It's great to break down the fat. So again, there are variations depending on which zone in the world one is. In Asia, people use it really just to break down the fat, whereas in North America, it's used to so-called lift. Yep. And I actually think that the mindset in Asia is correct. At the end of the day, fatter, fuller faces look younger. Yes. Um, and when you have redundant skin like a turkey neck that looks worse in terms of an aged appearance than a fuller rounder neck so for something like that really you know where liposuction is done we can traumatize the tissue helping it to scar up more and tighten and then you can apply radio frequency as well so again here's another example where one plus one is more than two mm -hmm. um they're like like they work synergistically together. synergistically yeah, yeah okay um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of, um, 
it's as you said, like it's just moving. It's moving so fast, and you know, you, you're seeing different results from different parts of the world and different people applying technology mm. technology differently. Um, but I guess when you look at the the, the skin tightening, it's sort of like a canvas, yes. you can pull a uh, you can pull you know an image over a canvas, but if it doesn't have you know the shape underneath, all you're doing is is drape, redraping a skeleton. Correct. And a common analogy that many use is with age. If you imagine a table with a tablecloth, mm. both the table has shrunk and the cloth has increased. Mm. So in the past, what people were doing was just to cut the cloth. And so people had a very windswept appearance. Yeah. So whereas now we both lift and we fill. So adding volume is important. So when I do facelifts, I actually transfer fat at the same time mm. um, to give a bit more projection and roundedness. And of course, fat has... Um, cells that help with rejuvenation as well. So fat transfer to the face is, is fantastic. I think that a lot of people don't realize when they're the aging process, what is actually happening. So, mm. you know, you've got, as you've mentioned, you know, collagen and elastin diminishing. Um, and you've also got bone reabsorption. So mm. all these platforms that these fat pads sit on and the skin sits across regresses or gets <clears throat> smaller with age. And I think that maybe you want to talk on that a little bit. But well, I think, yeah. the face has got different pockets or compartments of fat mm -hmm. and they're essentially in two levels, deep and superficial. So losing weight intentionally causes the loss of the more superficial fat. Whereas with age, we lose more of the deeper fat. So again, we've got to ask ourselves what we're trying to achieve and patients have to be reviewed in a three-dimensional fashion, not just, you know, a 2D head-on fashion. But unfortunately, our clients come to us with the 2D want. Yes. I've got a line doctor, fill it. Mm. And yet, like you say, the educational process is taking lots of different photos, discussing, showing them in a mirror whilst you lift their face, the mm. consequence of what happens if you treat above the line, for example. So um, Absolutely. And, you know, I would actually submit that it's, one of the reasons I don't ever give uh, free consultations is because when one is spending their time, you're going to spend, if, if a patient's paying, you're going to obviously put more effort into it and give them a lot more of a considered a review and appraisal than just saying, here's a free consultation, come in five minutes in and out. Yeah, yeah. well, it has no value to it as well. Correct. You want to make sure if someone's actually there for the right, not just, you know, wasting your time and their time. Mm. There's actually... Oh, okay, it's, 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 it's basically. Value. Okay, yeah, sure. Um, so what other non-surgical treatments do you offer as well as threads? Well, um, I do teach for a couple of um, laser companies or energy-based device companies. Um, but as a rule of thumb... If we break down the non-surgical approaches, we've got botulinum toxins or anti-wrinkle injections. We've got soft tissue fillers. And again, people say dermal fillers, but they're more soft tissue because we're working at different planes. Um, we've got threads, um, both uh, repositioning and just volumizing or neocollagenesis, stimulating new collagen. And then you've got lasers. So that can address pigmentation issues. It can address problems with vessels. Um, you've got sclerotherapy or the use of chemicals to address prominent vessels as well. You know, mm. for example, spider veins in the legs. Um, and then you've got um, techniques that are going to cause skin tightening, the radio frequency, and then the fat destructive mechanisms. So they're really the non-surgical approaches. Um, so I can pretty much, you know, I'm trained in all of those and I give talks on all of those different topics around the world. So that's been one of 
the parts of my job that I've enjoyed. Mm. That's being invited as a speaker to different parts of the world. And it also means that I can pick up, you know, pearls from other people. Sharing knowledge is very important and being open to receiving perhaps different ways. One doesn't have to agree, but I think you have to be open. Just be aware of out there. Yeah. And different parts of the world, different trends. And of course, the more multicultural a society is, the more one has to appreciate finer nuances. You know, for treating the Asian face or Oriental Asian face is going to be a very different approach from treating perhaps an Irish face. Yeah. Um, the pattern of aging, um, trends, etc., etc. Mm. So, um, awareness of the world. So you're you're a very busy man. How do, how do people find you? Because whenever I call you or we speak, you're on a plane or you're heading somewhere. You, I think um, I took about seventy flights last My year. Goodness, and it's something I do want to. Um, good air miles, sir. Good air miles, and um, <laughs> not good for the aging process, not, But it's again context and mm. being grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, it's absolutely. you know I'm I feel blessed that I can do that, and yes, I've worked hard, and I've got about eighty post nominals, which has obviously come with effort, time, etc. But at the same time, you know, it's a, it's a blessing to be able to do this kind of thing. So yeah, so how do people, find, so people want to find Dr. Nero, how do they? Mm, so I work um, at Cosmetique in WA. Yeah. Um, how do you I've, spell that? Sorry. Just... So C-O-S-M-E-T-I-Q-U-E. Mm -hmm. So that's based in Perth. Mm -hmm. And I'm just about to launch Ignite Medispa and Wollongong Private Hospital. Right. Which is going to be Australia's first Medispa inside a private hospital. So dental rooms, medical rooms, and spa rooms. And then I do some work in Melbourne as well, where we have okay. a branch. And um, people so, want to contact you? So drnero.com.au. Okay, perfect. Uh, you're on Instagram, Facebook? I am. I'm not very active. Um, right. And it's something my marketing team um, would like me to be more active with. But I've been, I suppose, a bit more of a conservative doctor. I don't tend to put too much out there. Mm -hmm. I think at most there are images of me giving lectures and talks, mm. but that's pretty much it. Yeah. But no, I think the uh, Instagram handle is at Dr. Nero, D-O-C-T-O-R-N-I-R-O. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much indeed. Appreciate and good luck with this wonderful uh, series of talks that you're putting together. I think, again, you're doing a wonderful job for the public in terms of uh, making them think and giving them awareness as to different aspects of the aesthetic industry. So well done and thank you. Thanks. Thank you, mate. Thank you.